Hello, my name is Michael McLennan, and welcome to COVID Matters, the podcast produced by COVID Aid. In this episode, we're speaking to Dr. Dean Burnett. He's a neuroscientist, lecturer, author, blogger, podcaster, pundit, science communicator, comedian, and numerous other things. And most recently, he's written Psychological. In the book, he reveals what's actually going on in our brains when we suffer mental health issues such as anxiety, depression, and addiction. I personally found it really useful to listen to over the past few months, so it was great to chat with Dean to find out more. I think it would be really helpful to find out a bit about Psychological and what was your motivation for writing it. Yeah, um, the book Psychological, my most recent release, is uh, essentially the science of mental health. Uh, it comes from a lot of different sort of strands in my general professional life. I never really saw myself as being a mental health writer. That was never my plan because, uh, as I say in the book and elsewhere, and whenever anyone asks, I've never had a clinical problem with my mental health thus far. I mean, could happen, obviously. Uh, mm-hmm. came close to happening during the pandemic. I had a lot of uh, traumas to deal with. But thus far, I've never lost the ability to function. So um, I'm, I'm very much of the, of, in the agreement uh, with the sort of the general stance that the discussion around mental health problems should be led by those who have personal first-hand experience with them. Because I just think that you know, it, it's such a subjective thing. It's such a variable thing that being objective and sort of, you know, you're consistent with it is kind of impossible. So it should be those who know the most should tell us about it. And so yeah, that's, that's my general, that's always my general vibe. But when I started my writing career professionally, uh, I was working as a psychiatry tutor and lecturer because I'm a doctor of neuroscience. I have like a lot of experience with the brain and stuff. So I was right about the brain anyway. And I worked for The Guardian. My general approach was, I thought I'd be, I was a false bottles doing anything, but I, I was describe myself as the jester of the science section because I was the, you know, the guy who did comedy on the side as well. So I wrote like funny things about science or satirical stuff and it went down well, got a, got a nice audience for it. But um no, I never saw myself as a serious writer because I thought, well, that's, that's not my niche. Other people do that better than me. And then, you know, so I was just chugging along doing that. I was quite happy with it. There was some interest in me doing a book and talking about that. And then it was August 2015, or was it 14? I think it was 14. Um, Robin Williams passed away uh, you know, by, by, by suicide. And it was, um, the news had broken. I went to the office that morning and it was obviously on American time. So... News had broke that Robin Williams had died of suicide, and it was everyone was heartbroken. It was horrible, and it was you know, rolling coverage of his life and his legacy. But already, the news only a few hours old. You're seeing by social media and the various media outlets, uh, people saying it was selfish. You know, he was a selfish man for taking his life like this, upsetting those who loved him, and giving everything he's got. How would he do that? It's just selfish. And you got that a lot when someone high profile dies by suicide. Uh, it just seems to be a knee-jerk thing um, for whatever reason it comes from, but that's not how it works. It's the other time I was lecturing in psychiatry and mental health and teaching people how to approach it, uh, not from the medical standpoint, but from the sort of the more holistic, uh, taking patients' stories into account and looking at, looking from their perspective and all that sort of stuff. And I knew that, that you know, firsthand by various experiences, that that's not how depression worked. And I knew the, da- the dangers that... Um, bad report of mental health can cause, because I'm from Bridgend, the uh, South Wales area, which had the Bridgend suicide spate in the early 2000s. I don't know if anyone remembers that, but 
Uh, my family was deeply affected by that. Uh, certain members were you know, part of my extended family. And you know, the media coverage of it was just shocking. It was like some sort of, ooh, this ghoulish town where these children are taking their own lives. Ooh, what's that about? It was sensationalist. It was completely inconsiderate because, you know, poor white Welsh working class values town. And um, what, what do we matter? Essentially, was the, uh, was the gist of it. We're just good for sensationalism and look at the weirdos sort of stuff. And, you know, that's... I don't know how much damage that did. I mean, how many lives were lost because that's all reporting. So I've already always had a bit of a, you know, a knee-jerk resistance to bad reporting mental health stuff. So when the Robin Williams thing happened, I was seeing this and it sort of just tipped me over the edge slightly in that I thought, well, somebody should say in the media that that's not how it works. I thought a depression works. And we thought it was depression by dying at the time. Turns out it was Lewy body dementia, but that's a whole other thing. And you know, there's a lot of overlap with that in dementia. But anyway, at the time it was assumed he died because of depression and I think you know someone should correct this someone should put out you know the, the actual explanation of how it works and I think you know, no one's ever going to do that but then I realized I had this Guardian blog it wasn't the biggest thing it was a niche thing but I could do something and I did I said wrote this quick piece but like that's how depression works it works like this um it's not selfish you stop saying that because it just does more damage and I put it up there and I said to them say look you can put this up I know it's not going to get much traction because it's the day of Robin Williams stories but I've I feel better for having said something. And it went up and uh, it was the most popular piece that week uh, of any of any of the Robin Williams coverage and read like two or three million times in the first seven days. And it uh, sort of pushed my profile way, <laughs> way beyond where it was currently at. And uh, as a result, it sort of became the something of a go-to guy for mental health um, coverage or mental health stories or commentary because I approached it scientifically. It wasn't my... Um, personal experiences it was like well this is what the facts say is the psychiatric review is the psychological review uh but it's you know it's important to keep these things in mind you can't just say kind of just like have this assumption that that's how it works and ignore everything else and i think it provided context and <clears throat> some insight and it helped sort of reduce stigma by saying no this is why it happens and i sort of wanted to do a book about that well i felt a book about that would be helpful at some point uh, or in, some, in various ways uh, the first book I did wasn't about that, but it was there's elements of that in it, and same with the second and third. So it's always been something I've steered towards or tried to include. And when the opportunity came up uh, with Audible, who said they wanted a dedicated audio book, I said, well, I can do it about mental health. I've always wanted to do that. They said, that's great. And I did. And then uh, Faber published it in a paperback earlier this year. So in a roundabout way, that's the sort of that's the various routes I, which culminated in me writing this book, which is like why mental health goes wrong and why why it happens in the brain like it does and so on and so on. And um, people seem to like it so far and quite happy with that. And part of what you talked about there is the fact that there has been stigma. And I, like I can remember from, you know, 5, 10, 20 years ago, there seems to have been progress, but it seems that the the lockdown, the pandemic has really accelerated an understanding of the fact that we all have this concept of mental health that we are looking to try and maintain, but we've been thrust into a completely abnormal situation that none of us have experienced before. Um, and I think that's part of what was really interesting listening to the audiobook as I did over the past couple of months. Um, so can you tell me, <clears throat> I'm aware this can be hard, but you say in the audiobook you're, you're compressing so much information <laughs> and, and things are changing all the time. But can you tell me a bit about the depression and anxiety and addictions, what some of the causes for those are? Well, there does seem to be, according to the literature I looked through, and I did go through a lot because I 
I'd like to be thorough because I'm, I'm very paranoid about being found out or being told I'm wrong about stuff. So, yeah. so it's going to happen anyway, but I'd like to have at least a, a basis based my claims on as much fact as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the main factors in the prevalence of mental health problems in the modern world is stress. And you'll see some you know, your typical contrarians say like, well, modern world's so easy. Like I was tired in our day and like doing the war, they had it hard and blah, 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 blah. And the usual contrarian nonsense. Um, it doesn't work like that though. I mean, stress is a subjective thing. If you are born into massive, massive wealth and you have never to worry about money ever, 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 you have a high standard of living, but that becomes your baseline because that's what you're used to. So say like if your mansion burns down, you could afford loads more. You can afford another one next day, but the fact is you've lost something you cared about and it's all the stuff in it. That's going to cause you a lot of stress and that could cause you to develop a mental health problem as a result. So, you know, it's a subjective thing. So even though our lives are objectively more comfortable than the past now, there's still plenty more to be stressed about, you know, the more you have, the more you can lose, I suppose you could argue that way. So stress is easy to come by and our brains are very good at stress. They are uh, sort of inherently predisposed by something called the threat detection network to look for dangers and risks and hazards because uh, that's kept us alive for millions upon millions of years back when before we were humans. You know, it's a deeply embedded circuit in the brain. And when we encounter something which is a threat or could potentially harm us, we experience the fear response, or as people often call it, the fight or flight reaction. But it's not all or nothing. It's not like anything potentially dangerous suddenly full fight or flight, because that's you know, that's impractical. That it's a big, powerful, and draining response when you have the full adrenaline shock. You know, you just go into panic mode. Can't do that with everything, which may possibly present some sort of risk at some point, because you never get anything done. So you know, the precursors or like the, the buildup to the stress resp- fight or flight response, that's what stress is essentially. It's your body becoming prepped to deal with a danger. It's like the, uh, I think the book I use the analogy that it's like if the fight or flight response is the big boss in a video game, stress is all the minions you have to wade through to get to it. Uh, not the actor really want to, but it, you know, that's sort of, um, so they're not as big or as powerful as the main thing, but there's a lot more of them and they can easily damage you and, you know, kill you if you, if you need to, they need to. And this is a sort of problem uh, because the brain's, the human brain sort of evolved in a way which means it's become a victim of its own success. It can now encapsulate and appreciate and just be aware of possibilities and you know, uh, hypothetical scenarios, or it can predict things, it can anticipate, which is a great boon when you, can, you can do a lot of stuff with that. Uh, but because the fundamental parts of our brain, which handle stress and and the various emotions, they don't really discern between things that are really happening to us and things that could potentially happen to us at some point that the higher brain sort of creates. So normally a creature in the wild would be stressed by the presence of a predator or lack of food or wandering through new territory with like no lots of shadows. So these are all things which like these could be threatening to us right now. These could present a danger, a mortal danger to us any minute. So you become stressed, you know, just going through stuff like that. But when the human, you know, with human brain, you can think like, well, the economy is not going great because of the pandemic. I could lose my job. I could you know, be on the, I could lose my income. I could not pay my mortgage. I could lose the house. And these things stress you out. They haven't happened. They may never happen. But the, the possibility of these hypothetical things happening causes a stress, even though they don't actually physically harm us, unless you count, you know, not be able to buy food or shelter and stuff is, is harmful. 
or if you're in a relationship, you know, you see the part, your partner talk to someone else and you, you don't know who that is. Like you think, oh, maybe she or he is flirting with them. Maybe she is planning to leave me. You, you bring up all these wild scenarios in your head about what could happen if your partner dumped you and like broke up and you become suspicious and stuff. And you have these emotional reactions to things which A, haven't happened and B, may never happen. And we even become stressed about things which definitely did not and cannot happen. When you cross a road absentmindedly and a car nearly misses you, you'd be panicked about that for hours. You know, like you just, you'll have the fear reaction. You'll, you'll dwell on it. You'll think about it uh, constantly because it's your brain's way of learning. Sort of saying, like, right, that was bad. Don't do that again. Got to reinforce this over and over again until it's <laughs> until it sinks in that I don't want to be in that situation where I could be killed like that again. So there are loads of things the human brain is able to conjure up, which causes stress. But the stress mechanism is still the same fundamental one we've had for millions of years. And the brain didn't really evolve to deal with stress long term. It's supposed to be like a, an acute stress, like the short, sharp burst of it, because mm-hmm. danger is here. Either it gets you or you escape it, in which case danger is gone and you live to fight another day. So stress or the fear response is meant to be temporary. But because we can keep these possibilities in our head and there's no real getting rid of them. So like, say, if you say, if you're paranoid that your partner's going to leave you, until they actively do leave you, you're going to constantly be paranoid about that because you can't prove a negative. And so like, there's no end point to that. So you can be constantly stressed about that. Or if your job is hard and you're constantly demanding things of you and there's no end in sight, that'll constantly stress you out. And there's no end point to it. But stress has a tangible physical effect on us. You know, it causes us to become immunosuppressed. It, you know, it suppresses the immune reaction because when you're I mean, fighting for your life, you don't want to have sort of the swelling and inflammation of an immune response. So that's sort of maybe a short-term stopgap to keep us going, but it's not helpful in long-term at all. And it causes us to gain weight because we comfort eat or build up our reserves to ensure that we survive long-term because we're stressed and stuff. And uh, we drink more just to take the edge off and that's self-medicating and stuff. So these things make us unhealthier and we become more stressed as a result. But then these stress chemicals also have effects on the brain. Like they amp up the the focus and the memory system when we're stressed and that um, it's, it's an emotional response and the brain adapts. It becomes, you know, it changes in response to what's asked of it. And that means like the part to use more often become bigger and stronger like a muscle. So the amygdala, the part which controls stress and fear, becomes more active when we're constantly stressed because it's been used more to the point where it's uh, the usual system to keep it in check and rein it in aren't powerful enough to stop it. And you experience constant fear and stress, which is anxiety. You know, you have mm-hmm. a, a constant unattached anxiety response. You're, you're afraid and uh, you don't know why. There's no real reason for it. Or if there is a reason, your fear response is completely disproportionate to what the actual outcome could be. And all it can happen in sort of short bursts because the amygdala just suddenly kicks off and you have panic attacks. So it's like that. Or there could be a certain one traumatic event, which is PTSD. So... This lingers in your memory and causes this constant anxiety because you can't face it. You can't process it. It's just too traumatic. So that's sort of anxiety and how stress works there. But not every part of the brain adapts in the same way. And one modern theory is that constant stress causes the parts of the brain which control mood, regulate mood, allow it to change. They become overtaxed by stress. Like they sort of constantly react into it. They get worn out. The neurons are exhausted by the constant demands placed on them by the stress chemicals. So they just stop working. They don't die, but they're on standby. And therefore, our mood becomes fixed and we can't change it. And because we were stressed before, and it usually means it's a bad mood or a negative mood or just even no mood whatsoever. And that's that's sort of like the key, the hallmark of depression. It's not being sad because, as 
people point out, everyone has low moods now and again, is that you can't change them. Like they stick, they stay in place for two weeks at a time, which is really weird for any mood, let alone a really bad one, a really low one. And it's because uh, the theory is now that these neurons, which allow us to change our mood, have been just worn out by stress. And antidepressants slowly but gradually coax them back into life, which is why antidepressants take two to three weeks to kick in, or at least the the, the everyday antidepressants we most commonly subscribe, the SSRIs or the MOAs and stuff. So, yeah, so it's a lot to do with stress seems to be like the, the, the key aspect of a lot of modern-day mental health problems, which is um, when it comes to addiction, not so much stress, but uh, no, the response to stress. You sort of self-medicate, and if you're prone to addiction or your reward pathway is too <clears throat> sensitive, then you might be someone who's got a, a weakness for just becoming addicted to these pleasurable novel compounds and your brain adapts to them in really unhelpful and harmful ways. So, you know, you can point to stress as a big factor in a lot of bonding mental health stuff. And obviously, as you alluded to just now, the pandemic has caused a lot of people to be a lot more stressed for longer periods, combined with the fact that the usual avenues for reducing stress in healthier ways, like going out or just traveling or experiencing new things or just getting out and about or seeing friends and family these are all known to be stress reducers uh, all of those have been sort of blocked we can't do any of those things so not only we have a lot more to worry about the pandemic itself and all the restrictions we have to obey and the danger of it and you know the, the uncertainty of it all and it's added to stress and our usual app options for dispelling the stress have been taken away too so it's like a double whammy of increased stress for a lot of people which is why you'd expect to see Sort of sharp spikes in the general mental health problems of the overall population. And going by the data available now, we are actually seeing that. So, yeah, so you know, it's all some sort of constant theme of stress and anxiety and uh, dealing with uh, the, the, the issues of modern life, which you know, takes its toll on our mental health. And thinking about the, because there's been that combination that people have experienced a variety of uh, whether it's anxiety, depression, uh, lapses into addiction or, or journeys into that, as well as I know there's been people talk about languishing as well. And has there been anything um, that surprised you in terms of how uh, we as a public have, have dealt with such a unique situation over the past year and few months? Um, yeah, it's been a lot of uh, surprises, both good and bad, obviously. I mean, it's been quite surprising how many people have uh, just not accepted it, uh, just refused to believe that it's even a thing. Um, and you know, this, I'm su- sort of surprised, but not really surprised uh, when I think about it with the level of conspiracy theories, which pop up about it and think like, oh, it must be a hoax. It must be, uh, you know, it's a, a scam or it's a, it's a lie or it's a cover up, all these things. It does actually make sense when you think that it's a big, scary event that's happened in the wider world. Uh, it's affected all of us in some way, shape, or form, uh, some more than others, uh, definitely. But everyone's been you know, tangibly affected by this thing that's happened. And conspiracy theories arise when you, know, you think that the, the human brain instinctively does not like uncertainty, uh, because uncertainty means you know what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen. You can't prepare for it or can't anticipate it. So it could hurt you, and that's not a good way to be. And so look, the human brain does whatever it can to reduce uncertainty. And in stuff like this, or like major world events, which are bad, the idea that they can happen just randomly by just pure bad luck is, in a fundamental way, scarier than the idea that they were organized by a shadowy 
cabal or like the Illuminati or whatever it happens to be, because that means you know we can't do anything about it if it's chance or bad luck. That's just the way the dice fall sometimes. But if it's um, you know, if it's all the work of the mysterious powers, then like, well, somebody's in charge here at least. You know, we can appeal to the better nature. We can find them out, and you know, it also gives you a sense of um, uh, superiority, if a sense of strength, sense of reassurance that I know the secret. Nobody else does. I know it. I'm I'm better than you because I. No, it's it's a sense of control which we all sort of strive for in everyday situations. So there's been that. Um, I have been sort of pleased by the degree to which most people have been quite willing to go along with the restrictions and stuff. You know, as much as they don't like it, um, that was one thing for the government behavioural scientists underestimated. They, you know, I've always been, uh, by and large, uh, I'm an optimist about people. I think you know, the average person is a good person. Uh, maybe they maybe they define good different to I do, but they mean well and will do the right thing in most situations. Some don't, uh, that's they stand out and they tend to be uh, elected, and that's <laughs> that's a whole other issue. But it's you know I guess I'm an optimist, but so that was reassuring for me to see that lots of people uh, will be you know, will do what's required. I know there's, there's lots of news about people who don't, like people who sort of break curfew, okay, curfew, break lockdown rules, and storm the beaches and stuff, but when you think of how many people there are in this country, there's still a surprisingly small percentage of us all, but because they're the ones doing stuff, then they get the news coverage. So, you know, there's no news to be had in 99.9% of people just behave normally. <laughs> that's, that's not a news story. It's 10,000 people are bad versus 57 million people are fine. Uh, you know, but this, it's the former which actually gets headlines. So, I mean, like that wasn't a surprise, but it's, you know, if you look at it like that way, I think it can be quite reassuring. So, yeah, it's been it's been a mixed bag of um, experiences during the pandemic. Yeah, and I was going to ask in terms of your own brain, because as somebody who studies it, I wondered if there's anything about your own reaction and your own experience which has surprised you uh, since the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm literally writing a book about that exact thing right now. Um, mm. It'll hopefully be up next year if I can get <laughs> if I can hit, hit the deadline by the end of this month uh but it's yeah because you know i've had a particularly tough pandemic as people who know me will know that um like may last year no, april last year I, my father passed away from covid he contracted in march and lasted a month and succumbed to it and he's 58 years old no prior health conditions so <clears throat> anyway it was a very painful tragic loss for me in the midst of the strongest possible lockdown where i couldn't see anyone i couldn't be with anyone. I couldn't have anyone help me or share my grief or, you know, just, just you know, when people experience a severe grief, you help out, didn't you? Go around, you look after their kids for them, you cook for them, or you just do what you can do. And I couldn't have any of that. I had to still be the father to my children they needed because they were scared and alone and isolated in this particularly tra you know, traumatic time. So I guess I, I was sort of surprised by how I managed to get through it. I mean, my mental health took a huge knock. I'm not arguing that. My well-being really suffered. But never declined to the point where I couldn't cope or couldn't function. Uh, but who knows, maybe it will. Because like I think one thing I do know is that we're only just now coming out of lockdown-ish. And I haven't been back in the normal world since my father died. So should I end up sort of seeing family more regularly again and doing things which I would be doing, which he would normally be at finally, maybe his absence will then suddenly strike me as, oh my God, he's gone. He's never coming back because... I haven't seen him for a year and a half now, nearly. Uh, but I wouldn't. I haven't seen barely anyone, and that's sort of. It's not. Maybe it's not different enough for me to 
appreciated in a tangible sense. But it's been sort of, it's been helpful being a neuroscience guy at this time, like knowing why my reactions are what they are. But I've also learned a great deal about just how entrenched or set up emotions, like it's quite typical in science um, to not ignore emotions, but sort of like, you know, put them to one side or just like, you know, oh, that's, they're fine, they're just there. And that uh, you know, I've, that's what the thrust of the book is, like my, my emotional reactions. The book's going to be called Emotional Ignorance. It's meant to be called Emotional Intelligence. Then I realized I don't have any, so I had to call it Emotional Ignorance. And uh, hopefully that'll resonate. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, but it's, uh, just, you know, despite being you know, the go-to brain expert for many years now, uh, the depth of my own ignorance about how my own brain dealt with emotions was quite startling to me. And, you know, I the range of things I felt, you know, the whole thing about five stages of grief, it's nowhere near that simple. Um, uh, even the person who originated that says it's not that simple. It's just been warped by the mainstream. But um, yeah, so it's been helpful to grasp out this is happening. I can sort of get why this is happening, but uh, being unable to do anything about it is perhaps the most uh, the most profound thing. Uh, like when like my, my father's funeral, I didn't cry until later that evening, apart from a few moments. And I, and I wanted to, I actively felt like I should. I was certainly sad enough. It was horrible, but I didn't um, because there was other people around and I'd been conditioned my entire life, not by anyone on purpose, but like, you know, I'm, I'm the man. I don't cry. I'm, I'm strong. I am stoic. And I know how harmful that stereotype is. I don't want that cliche because emotional suppression is never more than just a short-term helpful thing. Uh, you know, if you're trying to get through something in the long term is really damaging. It stops you processing emotions and lets them build up. It affects your memory, affects your well-being, and it may be a big factor in why male suicide is so much higher than female suicide because we don't have the ability to cope with our emotions because we're never allowed or never encouraged to express them, which is a big part of how we deal with and process our emotions. And I've learned that since. Uh, but you know, knowing that and being able to do it was a whole other thing. And that was weird for me to find out, well, as much as I know this is just a cultural stereotype that men aren't emotional and don't show emotions, as much as I wanted to break it, it was still really hard to do so because that stuff goes in very, very deep. Um, so you know, to sum up my general uh, view of how being a neuroscientist helped me through the pandemic, it's sort of like being a trained mechanic trapped in a car with no brakes on the motorway you know what the problem is, but you're still inside it. You're still, you, know, you can't do anything about it until this comes to a stop. You just got to grab the wheel and hope you can get through this and hope nothing sideswipes you or you know, totals you until you can get to a safe place. And you know, just knowing what the problem is, is one thing, but being able to address it, like I couldn't because it is all happening. This, the brain I was using to think about this was the brain that was throwing out all these uh disruptive feelings and emotions. So it was um, it was an interesting experience, but uh, you know, one I'll, everyone can read about soon enough, I guess. Finally, in terms of advice uh, for people listening to this, I think one of the things you speak about in the book is the fact that through understanding um, how the brain works and that can help in terms of being able to cope with it. Would that be correct? Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, one thing which uh, seems to be a common theme in a lot of modern therapies, particularly those based on like development of technology, is that it involves a process of taking the aspects of the mental health problem and making them more tangible, giving them a sort of presence in the real world, which they otherwise lack. 
because that is something mental health problems uh, often don't have uh, compared to physical problems. Because with a physical health problem, like a broken leg, you can point it and say, that's my leg, that's what's wrong with it. And it's not really me. But with like, you know, low moods or constant anxiety or hallucinations or paranoia, it's happening within your own mind. No one else can see it. And your experience of it is really intimate and it's kind of hard to, you know, to express it or to get any sort of grasp on it because there's no boundaries to it. It's, you know, your mind is intangible. It's subjective. It's, there's no limit or definition to it. That makes anything that goes wrong with it a lot more scary or, uh, you know, I think this sort of stuff fuels the stigma and suspicion around it. So a lot of modern technology is being introduced to, <clears throat> to give mental health problems more of a presence. Um, the things called like biofeedback and neurofeedback where like someone with anxiety is hooked up to a monitor and shown their sort of brainwaves or heart rate. When they experience an anxiety spike, those activity levels jump and they say, try and reduce those rather than stop being anxious because you can't really do that. And so it gives them something to focus on, gives them an external, uh, tangible thing to, 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 to grasp. The brain gives them something to grasp. And also other therapies doing that with like, the hallucinations in schizophrenia with the avatar therapy and PTSD are, you know, it's being treated in this way now. People have been exposed to scenes from their memory and so on and so on. So and that's something I sort of, you know, in a roundabout way, I'm trying to do that with a book. I'm saying, yes, you may have these issues and problems, but here's what's happening in your brain when this when this occurs. It's not necessarily your fault. It's not your you know responsibility. This is what's happening. Here's the physical basis for it. Here's why what we think is going on and why you're not flawed. You're just dealing with this thing right now. I think giving it a more tangible basis um, is something which, fingers crossed, can be reassuring, be more comforting, and help people understand it better and understand why certain therapies work and why medications work. And that is the goal, I guess. Thanks so much to Dean for speaking to us. And thanks also to him for sticking with me as I experience a number of technical challenges on the day. I would really recommend psychological. I found it really interesting. It was a great listen uh, in audiobook format. And I also found it really helpful at this time. If you're unfamiliar with COVID-Aid, we are the UK's new national COVID-19 charity. We launched in May 2021, looking to support all those who've been affected by the pandemic. You can find out more about us at covidaidcharity.org. That is covidaidcharity.org. And you can also find us on all social channels by searching for COVID Aid Charity. Uh, We'll be back soon with another episode. And until then, take care.